Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, thank you. I'm quite well fed. How, 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 how are you doing, Darren? I think like everybody else at the moment, I am also very, very, very well fed. Well, um, no, I, I mean, there are the people who, who, are, who are getting very virtuous as well. You haven't heard about this? No, <laughs> like, not my scene. <laughs> not my scene at all. Not quite what I, I use the lockdown as an excuse to indulge. Uh, but actually, yes. This is an almost contemporaneous episode, so we can talk about things and not worry about it becoming How irrelevant. How dated they are, yes, yeah, at, yeah. at the pace 2020 is moving. But yes, we are talking today about Carl Reed's 1949 classic of British and European cinema, The Third Man. And to join us for that discussion, we have a fantastic guest lined up. We have Ifta and BAFTA winning director. I think she won the awards for Happy Valley. She recently also directed Sea Fever, which is available on Hulu in the United States and on streaming services in Ireland as well. The wonderful Nasa Hardiman. Thank you very much for joining us, Nasa. It's a great pleasure to be here. Perfect. And so what we normally do is because we are in lockdown, we can acknowledge that because this is a contemporaneous episode. Uh, what we've done is we've used this as an excuse to ask people that we really, really wanted to have on the podcast to come and join us to record remotely. And also because it's very hard to come up with an excuse to wiggle out of something like that now. Um, <laughs> but no, thank you very much for joining us. We reached out to you and we said we'd love to have you on the podcast. Um, I saw Sea Fever um, at the Dublin International Film Festival earlier this year. It's a fantastic film. Really, really liked it as well. And obviously I'd seen some of your television work as well. And so we asked, what would you like to talk about? If you could pick a movie on the list to talk about, which one would you talk about? You came back with, I think, three suggestions. So Interstellar, Das Boot, and the film we're talking about today, The Third Man. What was it about The Third Man that made it a film that you wanted to talk about? It's an absolutely brilliant film. For any of your listeners who haven't gone to see it, go to see it right now, then come back and listen to the podcast. It, it, it Not only does it deserve to be in the top 250 it deserves to be in the top 20 films of all time i think it is an exceptional near perfect piece of cinema that's again that's that's interesting i think roger ebert has ranked it in his top five as well and it was instantly yes a man of taste and discernment his website (laughs) also loved sea fever yeah, I, there we go. Like, I, I sense a causal connection there. A great taste as well. But um, one of the things that's interesting about The Third Man is that it was a movie, a lot of times in the podcast, when we talk about older movies, uh, what tends to happen is we say, well, you know, the movie came out and critics didn't get it. And, you know, it took 20, 30 years for people to come around and say, actually, that was a, that was a pretty good film. What was interesting about The Third Man, with a couple of exceptions that we'll probably talk about later on, was that it arrived and was pretty much instantly like, yes, this is the best British film ever made. And in fact, actually validated as the best British film ever made. It won the Palm Door uh, the year that it was released. Um, it was also voted by the BFI in 1999, 50 years after its initial release, as the best British movie of all time. But Nasa, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw The Third Man? I do. I was a kid and uh, I, I, you, well, you're probably far younger than I, so you probably don't remember this, but BBC Two ran a season of film noir uh, and every Saturday night at 11 o'clock they would they would uh, show a screening of a film noir and they started with German Expressionism and they moved through in chronological order and the third man obviously appears at the height of film noir. 
and I remember being really struck by it because you can see the influence, obviously, of German expressionism in the cinematography and in the tone and the mood of it. It feels like a very European film. And it also it embodies uh, quite a lot of the kind of hallmarks that we've come to associate with great film noir. You know, the fundamental questions that it asks about what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be loyal? The complex characterizations, the moral turpitude that we really associate with noir that incredible visualization of a city in decay, what I think the Germans call um, uh, Trümmerfilm, Tr- isn't it? Yeah. Yes, rubble uh, film, I think, is the translation. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, cracking, witty dialogue and just the outstanding expression of cinematography. I mean, I love Graham Greene as a novelist and as a screenwriter, and the tone of this film is just wonderful. It is. It's probably worth actually just going back very quickly and giving a very brief account of kind of the origins of this, because this was, I believe it was the second collaboration between director Carol Reed and an author Graham Greene. They previously worked together on The Fallen Idol. And I think that basically British film producer Alexander uh, Korda, who like one of the big titans of kind of British film production, particularly in the post-war era. Um, and at a time when, and again, this is very, very trying to film wonky but at the at the time british cinemas were trying to levy or the british government was trying to levy tax on american films coming into the market and so there was a big push for british films to be produced to fill the gap because audiences wanted these kind of films so corda was one of the producers who got in there and again he got in there this is a david o selnick's uh, co-production i'll probably talk about the american aspect of that later on but it is a quintessentially British movie in, in many ways, shape and forms. It's a film that feels very particular to a time and a place. It's been compared in some regards as, you know. Which isn't Saranic. Britain. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry? Which isn't Britain. Like, it, it's, it, it, that it's, it's like the, you're talking about kind of how, how, um, how it's like the British movie and how it's 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 very inherent to a time and a place um and that that place isn't britain that place is vienna well that place is more generic they would argue europe after the second world war um in that again this is the thing where to compete with america i think we talked a little bit about it on wages of fear like to compete with american cinema in the kind of late 40s and 50s you know you couldn't have britain do it by itself you couldn't have france do it by itself you had to have these big international co-productions um and obviously this was shot in Vienna. The, the Soviets ar- did it by themselves. They kind of had to. Yeah. Right? yeah. They, nobody was really kind of teaming up or partnering with them after the Second they World War. They had a whole union. <laughs> yeah. Um, of, of socialist republics. Well, I mean, you could argue that there were lots of different countries involved in that process. Yeah, That's probably yeah. a debate for another time, I would argue. Uh, but no, in terms of the, the origins of the Third Man, it began as something that I think Green had kind of scraped on the back of an, an envelope. He had written just two lines of plot. Regarding, you know, I went to the, I went to my friend Harry's funeral, and then I passed him the street on the Strand later that day, and from that, Corda said, "Can you develop a screenplay?" Um, and then basically, can you move the screenplay from the Strand in London over to Vienna um, for that international again for that production value that they wanted? Again, what's interesting about this is Green actually. There is a novelization of the Third Man, and it is written by Graham Green, but he never wrote the book to be published he actually wrote it so that he would have a basis for the screenplay he didn't think that he could actualize his ideas as a screenplay he wrote the novel first never planning for it to be published um, and then adapted into a screenplay and then released the novel afterwards because i think it's been argued that green has a uh, cinematic kind of um, aesthetic or cinematic voice when he's writing 
did it have? Yeah, um, I think that's possibly true. I mean, certainly his novels are, uh, you know, they they circle around a very kind of noir agenda more generally. Uh, and, and, you know, you could argue that the subject of something like The Quiet American or not so much Our Man in Havana, but The Quiet American, you can you can feel the same sorts of polarizations of ideas from The Quiet American in this film. Uh, and also, of course, The End of the Affair. No, I was just wondering if um, if back then they had that like sticker on the front that says now a motion now a major motion picture, <laughs> and if the cover of 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 it wasn't the the author's choice for the cover, but just a picture of the actor or, or the, the 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 front of the movie. I always find that interesting when there's quite like a well known book and they change. The, and now it's a movie, uh, yeah. Yeah, now it's a movie, so they repackage it as like if you like this mo- movie, you might like this book, and it'll have like Daniel Day Lewis on the front instead of Abraham Lincoln, you know. <laughs> uh, my personal favorite one of those is Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was a novelization <laughs> of Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh God, the circularity <laughs> knock you down. Nineties <laughs> yeah. uh, postmodernism eat your heart out, which yeah. I kind of adore. You see it well. actually in newspapers as well. You see uh, oftentimes when uh, when newspapers are referring to something that's historical, they'll use the film version of the historical event rather than the historical event itself. It's very disturbing. Yeah, again, that blurring of kind of fact and fiction as well, which perhaps feels a little bit appropriate when talking about a film like this. Um, but very quickly, then, actually, before we jump into the spoilers, because I think we're ready to talk about the film in a bit more depth, uh, Nessa. Um, do you think, and I think you've already answered this, um, so this is strictly pro forma, but do you think that The Third Man belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Well, I suppose it depends on how you're going to define the 250 greatest films ever made. But if you were to choose, say, theme, tone, casting, cinematography, music, design, location, I think all of those things this film really scores. So I think by any metric, it belongs in that company. And you're probably quite actually quite sick of people asking you this when you appear on like podcasts and are interviewed and particularly when you're talking about films, but would you cite The Third Man as an influence on you as a director? Whether oh visually my God, or even as a writer? I don't think any director worth their salt or any, any screenwriter worth their salt would be able to hold their head up high in any public space without having forensically examined The Third Man to understand how it works, why it works and what makes it such an affecting film. Um, was it the uh, was it Michael Winner? I believe once argued that all film schools should be closed down and aspiring directors should simply be made to watch The Third Man over and over again. Um, <laughs> there's the curriculum for you. And Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think that The Third Man belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I'm, I, w- I think I think for me it might have suffered from me. First of all, having seen it and enjoyed it before, and secondly, it being on the two fifty. So you you kind of have, having, and 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 I mean, it's not just that. It's it's being this tremendous movie, um, and you know it's great and it is great. And then having to wonder, kind of like, but is it is it is it is, <laughs> is it one it of the top two hundred fifty movies of all time? Of course, the answer is yes. But I I. I um, it wasn't, it, 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 it didn't, for some reason, and I'll probably get into it, but it didn't feel like as much of a lock as I was expecting it to. You know what I mean? Coming back to it, yeah. Yeah. I assume yeah. you're like myself, you probably saw this as a teenager would have been one of the first times I, you'd watched it. I think I probably watched it in Nerd Camp. Just yes, I also like watched it in Nerd Camp. Yeah, yes. yeah. 
Yeah, that's the when 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 we were children, just as it had come out. Um, <laughs> so like quite a while ago. Um, yeah, we we saw it on its first kind of like just after its first theatrical run, basically, is when we saw it. Uh, it is actually interesting that you mentioned that actually, because again, I I probably was going to mention this later, but it's worth bringing up now. I mentioned that immediately on release, the film was seen as being a classic. It was recognized as the greatest British film ever. I mean, and we'll have reviews from The Guardian at the time. But what's interesting is that American critics uh, tended to be a bit snooty about it. And again, this is one of the great recurring themes of us talking about like mid 20th century world cinema is that we're like, everybody loved it. And then there were the American reviews. Uh, but things like, say, um, Bosley Crowther at the New York Times described it as a very nice looking film, but at its heart, nothing but a melodrama. That oh, was that's his observation. Yeah. yeah. Now to be now to be fair, there's some discussion about that because he would have seen the original the, the David O. Selznick cut, which we'll talk about. But even like in retrospect, I think that Richard Brody at The New Yorker, when he saw the actual restored version, described it as one of the most overrated films of the twentieth century as well. Intriguing. And, yes, very, it very is. controversial. Yeah, well. I well, I suppose with the with how good it is, you kind of almost expect it to be perfect. And and there's so much, there is so much perfect about it. Like I'd say, you know, the the, the scripts, the 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 theme tune, that uh, iconic theme. Yeah, song, yeah. I, and 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 I'd say some of the performances and 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 the the, the setting. It's very I, um, iconic. And I I think echoic is the word that's used for theme tunes, right? Because <laughs> it's ear rather than eye. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, very. It's echoic. hard for a piece of music to be instantly trying, trying to make that music. word popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- th- thank you, Andrew. That's the two hundred and fifty word of the day there. No, I think um, I think I have to credit some other podcasts <laughs> with learning <laughs> that's that's. That echoic is the word that he is, yeah. Yeah, and again, I, I'm kind of, I am perhaps a little bit torn on this myself in that I think that, you know, I'm always reluctant to say that a an early movie, particularly a movie from the first half of the 20th century, doesn't belong on the 250 because the 250 is so obviously heavily weighted towards modern movies right. that it seems almost like every single classic Is this the 250? Over. It's the 250 from IMDb, right? It is So indeed, it's yes. popular vote. That's yeah, exactly. So the principle of availability will come into play. It's a, it's um. Uh, Tversky and Kahneman, isn't it, who say the principle of availability, if you ask people who's who are the top 10 singers, you know, somebody will say Lizzo and somebody else will yeah. say, I don't know, another contemporary singer because they're in your mind because you're seeing them right now and they'll forget, you know, that yeah. uh, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, there were there were a whole rake, rake of other people who have, you know, delivered similar or more outstanding performances. So I think you're right. I think the principle of availability is always in play when you have a popular vote. And also, I think even the fact that, like, you know, the joke about the golden age of science fiction being 12, you could argue the golden age of cinema is also 12. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's when you're slightly too young. Uh, when yeah. you're slightly too young yeah. for it is when you want to see these films. I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, that idea that uh, because by their nature, films are never going to be that profound in terms of the philosophical questioning. So you're at that peak age at 12 where you're kind of able to grasp it without really understanding that actually this is, you know, not very, de- not necessarily very deep. Yeah. So, for example, like it's worth noting, there are forty films on there from the nineties, fifty films on there from the two thousands. Ah, uh, here. And, you know, and again, forty-eight films on there from the twenty tens. Marvel um, movies opposed... tend to just kind of uh, <laughs> jump in, in and drop out. like like yeah. as it, it as guaranteed to be on the IMDb two fifty as they are to make three hundred million dollars, <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or I guess more. 
Um, yeah. It would be it would be funny if we were doing a Spotify uh, podcast because I saw the top one hundred on Spotify the other day, and it just made me feel really old, very very old. <laughs> it was, it was, I don't it, even know who like, half these singers are. Yeah, who is like Lizzo? Uh-huh. Post Malone is the second most popular artist of all time. Like like for 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 his um, for his tracks on Spotify in terms of listens. The great thing um, about being a film critic is I don't need to know that. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, I, but no, I, it is worth noting that in terms of like the first half of the 20th century, there are only 23 movies out of 250 wow. from that wow. period. Um, so I'm always kind of a little reluctant to kind of to, to nudge one off that's there. And, it, you know, I say that despite thinking that Unless there are... Unless you're going to replace it with something else. Yeah, yeah, but even even then, I feel like I could probably, like, take one of the, you know, 40 from the 90s or 49 from the 2000s and say, all right, you've had your time. Like, again, right, it, yeah. it, 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 you know, I always, I've talked on this podcast before about how classic Hollywood is an era that I respect more than I enjoy. I much rather the silent cinema beforehand. I think the school of German expressionism that kind of leads to this as well, more than the kind of classic Hollywood era. And this is, I think, it's an interesting counterpoint to it. You know, we described it as the evil twin to Casablanca. So I guess I, I am happy to see it on the list. I think it does deserve to be there, basically. It's my long way round of getting to that argument. And then second question, uh, Nissa, would it be on your own personal 250? And oh, I think you yeah. said it's a top 20. Um, oh, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of noir. I really enjoy noir cinema. I really, you know, I'm, I'm very drawn to the... Uh, the kinds of subjects that noir tackles and I'm really drawn to that very considered graphic sensibility that's that's one of the hallmarks of noir so yeah I would say this film has uh, has been a big influence on me also the tone of it I think has been a big influence on me um so and it would definitely be in your top 20 as well like mm-hmm. of, all, of all time and like solid kind of sturdy because normally when you ask people that, we found it's if there's always like, ah, it depends on the day that you ask me. Is this no, like a- I would say The Third Man is a film that I've watched several times and will watch again. And, uh, you know, if I meet somebody who hasn't met it, I will keenly sit down with them <laughs> and watch it. And I think the the kind of central questions, you know, talking about what are, what are the kind of philosophical underpinnings of cinema and do they sustain into adulthood? I think the questions that The Third Man asks are really genuinely quite profound uh, and, you know, reflective of Graham Greene and, and his own interests. But... They've, it, it feels like a European film in that sense. You know, it asks questions that are ultimately relatively unanswerable. And that's always the mark of a great piece of work, I think. Yeah. I was actually, again, not to jump too far ahead, I suspect that's maybe why the American critics reacted to it the way that they did. I think it is a very European film. Well, there's a degree yeah. to which, it, yeah, I mean, it is it is a critique of uh, of American intervention and it is a critique of uh, of that kind of uh, American, very starry-eyed uh, ideological approach to uh, to reconstructing Europe, which Green obviously developed in uh, his other work as well. You know, he was um, he was interested in that as an idea, but I think it's very present in this film. Yeah, um, and then Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal two fifty? Yeah, I mean, I I I. I, I don't think I'd mind having it on my on on, on my two fifty. I I, I might, I think I would. I can probably think of a few movies in this kind of um, genre from this sort of time that I might prefer to it. But um, but it's so um, um, iconic and echoic. <laughs> um, and and I, I I can and and I do I do also like how it 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 
how European it is, kind of like how, as 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 you were saying, kind of like even even as as um as an ostensibly English speaking movie, yeah. you know. They, they, but but the 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 whole point about like if this was a Hollywood movie, there would most certainly be an epilogue at the end. There would be a explain... very different, quite literally a very different ending. Like again, we'll talk this yeah. in, in the spoiler zone. There would be a oh. very very different ending. Oh, was there? Oh, okay. There was no, there was not a different ending. I think Graham pro- Greene wrote a different ending. He did indeed. Okay. And David Ozelznik pushed for the filming of Graham Greene's original ending as well. Um, and the American version of the film cut out 11 minutes uh, that basically removed any hint that the American protagonist was anything less than a strappingly handsome man who was absolutely going to save the day. Um, which again is is an interesting kind of study in the difference between how Americans and Europeans perhaps saw the post-war era. Um, and then, yeah, so myself, probably, maybe, I think, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, mm. I saw this for the first time again recently, having seen it as a teenager, and I was impressed at how well it hold up, held up. And it is a beautiful film. Oh, just yeah. Visually, just looking at it, its construction is amazing. It's immersive. And again, it's it's that school of German expressions that I think Nissa singled out. Like one of the things about the movie is it's set in post-war Vienna and it was actually shot on location, which was rare for a British uh, movie at the time. Because um, again, that was kind of like a big blockbuster thing. It was quite rare in, in American movies around the same time as well, although they're studio bound. But the devastation in Vienna after the Second World War has this interesting effect of making the city's architecture seem almost expressionist. Like there's sequences where they're running downstairs in the middle of the city and those stairs are jagged and bent and contorted in ways that they shouldn't be. But because of the devastation that's happened quite recently, there are piles of rubble there that shouldn't be. As a portrait of Vienna, it is outstanding. I mean, as a palimpsest of what Vienna was like after the war, it is extraordinary. And the, the feel of that film, the ghost of this fantasy echo finery that's in every choice of location is just stunning it's a you know it is a hymn to the awful tragedy of the destruction of europe and it's it's implicit woven into every scene woven into every moment even the comedy that uh, that anna is playing uh, when he goes when um just oh, the to see her you know everything about it uh uh Harry Lyme's house with these extraordinary sculptures outside the front and these massive great big halls and the other thing that I think is an absolutely extraordinary thing about this film is um, the casting Carol Reed did this brilliant thing which is quite unusual for the period where he cast proper Viennese actors playing those roles so I don't know if you speak German but everybody in the film who speaks German speaks it with a proper Viennese accent they are Viennese actors playing their parts You've got fantastic character actors like Hedvig Bleibtoy and Paul Herberger, who are, you know, stars in their own right in their in their local um, cinema and also on the stage at the time, playing these parts and breathing proper three-dimensional complex life into these small side characters because they're real Viennese actors living real Viennese lives in these locations. And there's something really powerful about that. And the film's refusal to subtitle a lot of the dialogue as well, which again is a point that. of contention. Yeah, between, I think uh, it's brilliant. I I felt like yeah, like like that was a lot of the point, right? Yeah. Well, it, like I guess we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on. I I I found that very interesting. In fact, I was watching it. I'd been doing my Duolingo <laughs> earlier in the year, but it stopped. <laughs> and then I was like, damn it! 
<laughs> if only that, that was a poor choice. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but the and and uh, um, I I was watching with 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 Petrina, and she was like, "Do you put on put on the subtitles?" And I was like, "I don't think it's going to. Uh, um, I don't think it's going to make any difference. I don't think it's going to 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 to, to translate." Yeah, because it was actually Selznick wanted subtitles, and he was told by Carda and by and by Reed, no, 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 no subtitles at all. Which is again a remarkably bold choice. Well, it makes film. sense, doesn't it? I mean, Holly is a fish out of water. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what the people around him are saying. So it's essential that uh, that we don't understand what he doesn't understand. Yeah. And then final question then to take us into the into the spoiler zone. And I think you literally opened the podcast with this. So I don't imagine it's going to be a surprise. But if listeners have not watched The Third Man, and again, I suspect, you know, in many of the movies we cover, the spoiler zone in inverted commas isn't that big a deal. But maybe if you haven't seen The Third Man, it's best to go in as blind as possible. So would you recommend that they pause the podcast? stay at home and stream it to a local device. Yes, I certainly would. I think it's one of those films that it is compelling. It's beautifully written and beautifully directed. It's not difficult to watch. It's not uh, a film that has moved away from us because it's a, it, it was made 60 or 70 years ago. It's a film that is immediate and fresh and feels exciting and contemporary. I think it's a very easy watch. Perfect. And Andrew... Yeah, no, absolutely. I, w- I would 100% recommend that people sit down and watch it. I think if you haven't um, sat down and seen it already, um, it is um, Nasser is quite right. It, it, it's, it is, it's, it's very accessible um, and very enjoyable. Um, you're, you will enjoy it a great deal. So, um, yeah, check it out. Yeah, and actually, probably NASA is probably the, the better person to talk about this in the podcast. But one of the things that's interesting about it is the editing and the rhythm of it as well. Because one of the things that's been noted, I think Matt Soller's Eitz made the point, and I noticed as well myself watching, is that Reed tends to come into scenes quite late and leave them quite early. And his scenes <laughs> tend to be relatively short by the standards of kind of 1949 cinema, British cinema in particular. So it does have a very, very quick rhythm to it. It moves surprisingly fast as it's going along, which I thought was. Uh, quite remarkable watching it it's like quite a short movie doesn't it well there's that famous sequence in the in the sewers which is really cutty uh and and feels very contemporary it feels kind of italian neorealist and in the 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 pace at which he's cutting it uh and you're cutting between these uh big chunky close-ups of extras uh, responding to what's going on around them, and then massive, great big wide shots of the of the sewers that are, you know, point lit, so that they're uh, you're emphasising um, single point perspective. And you know, you were talking about echoes earlier on, and that sequence is all about echoes and not quite knowing where you are in the space. But if you even just look at that sequence for for the way that it's cut, it is quite extraordinary. It feels very contemporary. It's incredibly fast. Yeah. Worth noting as well, those are relocations. Those sewers actually existed. Now, they did I have to build them. I think they rebuilt them, didn't they? They did rebuild some yeah. of them for reasons we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler zone. Spoiler, uh, Orson Welles is maybe not the easiest person to have worked with. Well, um, hold I don't... on a second. Is Orson Welles in this? <laughs> oh, well, damn it. <laughs> damn it, Andrew, you caught me out. Apologies. Um, there's an actor in this movie that may or may not have been the easiest person to work with. He was also, to be fair, featured on the like gigantic marquee poster on the original release. So it's not exactly a secret. But no, yes, good it's call. Funny. I, I watched the trailer and they make no reference at all oh, to, to the existence um, of... Uh, yeah, yeah, ah, yeah. Okay. That's interesting because I, I do remember that there were... 
Yeah, that's kind deal. of what we think of now in terms yeah. like, of, of the movie. I feel like if people know about this movie, they yeah, that, that one yeah, thing. Yeah, they know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right then. On that note, actually, well, Andrew, you you recommended it, and I would also definitely recommend it for the same reason. So, having apparently accidentally brought the spoiler zone forward, I'm going to officially take us into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Nessa, what is The Third Man about for you? <laughs> I well, did tell you this was coming, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think The Third Man is a really interesting film. I think it's a film about post-war Europe. It's a, it's a meditation, really, on what, it, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be moral? What does it mean to be loyal? Uh, it's a film that's set, I believe uh, it was Graham Greene's, one of Graham Greene's favourite quotes was that Robert Brown, Browning quote, that it's good to live on the dangerous edge of things. And certainly it's a film that takes place on the dangerous edge of things. So we're focused on Holly Martins, who is uh, an American who arrives wide-eyed, wet behind the ears in post-war Vienna, which is under the control of the four powers. And he starts out with an artificially simple moral view uh, of who's good, who's evil. His friend is good. The police must be evil because the police are after his friend. And during the course of the story, he has the blinkers removed from his eyes and he loses the kind of dangerous innocent innocence that, that uh, causes the um, military policeman to give him that brilliant phrase going, you are born to be murdered. I don't want you to be murdered tonight. Uh, and, uh, and becomes a sadder, wiser man by the end of the story. Does he become a sad, not to jump too far ahead to the ending, but does he become a smarter and wiser man at the well, ending? I think he's definitely a sadder man and he's had to make quite a difficult moral choice and he's made it. Uh, so, you know, it, if the essence of the film is what does it mean, the essence of all of Graham Greene's stories, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be moral? What does it mean to be loyal? He's made those choices uh, and he's suffered as a result of having to make those choices. I find it interesting though that famous like the ending shot and again one of the most iconic shots of the film we talk about things that people know about the third man and you know obviously Orson Welles is in the third man it's a big deal but the 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 iconic ending shot where Martin's kind of asks uh Callahan sorry Callaway he's he's British not Irish but they they ask sort of uh Callaway to to pull over and to let him off so he can wait for Anna and she just walks right past him I kind of like I wonder then in that moment is are we meant to see that he is still as naive as he was, that he still expected that Anna would, you know, forgive him for that kind of trespass against uh, Harry, that she would kind of go away with him, that they would be together and start a life together, as I think they do in the ending of the book, and as I think as Selnitz wanted them to do in the film as well, actually. Selznick definitely wanted uh, Graham Greene's ending, but I think that that's, that shot is one of the greatest storytelling shots in cinema. It's absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that makes it brilliant is the length of it. Yeah. But, uh, and, and you are led gently by the director into the idea that this may not go as planned because of the length of that shot. That's why it works. Uh, and I think that's masterful. And it means that when she does get up to him, you've had such a long time to think about it and to think about what this means and to think about who he is and who she is and what's happened. That when she just walks by him, it's that perfect cinematic resolution it is extraordinary and surprising but inevitable yeah. 
And it's, I, it's interesting that you single out the length of the shot because I think they did actually shoot a shorter version and Reed was like, no, we, we go with the, the long one. You know, He's right. Went. He's right. It's a storytelling decision. Yeah, you need that time. The audience needs that time. Now, interestingly, I had forgotten until I watched it again the other night that um, it's a repeat, not that, not the walking towards us, but the um, Callaway driving Holly Martins past Anna is a reprise from the beginning of the film. And I mean, and the symmetry as well with the two funerals as well. And the two funerals, yeah. yeah. But it, it's yeah. that shot in particular that I hadn't remembered. And it's incredibly yeah. moving the second time you see it. Yeah. Uh, because he is so transformed. But it, it's, that, it's that kind of aspect of the movie that makes me feel like he's not transformed at all. And that, and that that's, Holly Martins is the least interesting character Kind of in 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 um, in the movie in some ways, like 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 I find myself as as an audience member much more kind of drawn to kind of find out who Harry Lime is, I, and I I feel myself not caring at all <laughs> about who who Holly Martin's is. And I what think that's what, that's the intention of the story, though. I, I mean, think so. The story is about Harry Lime. Who's Harry Lime? Is he good? Is he evil? Is he? How should we approach him? And, uh, you know, it is a stroke of genius, I think, to uh, to cast Orson Welles, because like you say, you know, the first half of the film is it's all stories about Harry Lyme. It's all he's great. He's terrible. He's wonderful. He's sexy. He's charismatic. He's awful. You know, it's very difficult for us as audience members to make a decision about him. But all we know is he's amazing and we really want to meet him. Right. That's all we know about him. So from the point of view of the filmmakers, I think the casting is very interesting. How do you find an actor who can embody that and not disappoint the audience when they meet him? And I think Orson Welles is just a brilliant choice. He's, you know, when he does turn up, he has that kind of presence. He has this kind of shadowy, nebulous charisma. And he has this... Before he's opened as well. Well, it's one of those great introductory shots, I think, actually. It's it's been described... Yeah. yeah, the feet, and then even the moment when the kind of like when it lights up from the window and you oh, see him. Ah, kind of isn't just... it terrific? Maybe. But I mean, the, the obviously the pièce de résistance is that scene on the uh, on the Ferris wheel, which is just superb. You don't need me to tell you about that. But it's it. The other thing that really struck me about it, watching it again, is the pace of it, the pace of the delivery of that scene. You know, it's it's delivered almost like a screwball comedy. Like they talk over each other, they step on each other's lines. He's moving emotionally incredibly quickly through that scene, uh, and and it shows his chops as an actor. It's an extraordinary performance. Uh, and then there's the famous speech, of course, at the end. Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. Uh, where he talks about the Borgias versus uh, Switzerland, Switzerland, and hundred years of five hundred years of democracy and peace and brotherhood, and they produce the cookie clock. Now there's there's um, an apocryphal story, I think, that Wells made it up that he extemporized it um, I did come across a quote from Graham Greene saying no Orson Welles said he was quoting from a play that he had learned as a young man a Hungarian he, play I think is, is I think that's yeah that's what he says I've no idea what the play is or if that's true yeah. but uh, but he delivers it with just such ambiguity that he maintains the charisma and, and that's extraordinary and again one of the things that Wells is very like 
an interesting character that we'll probably talk about more depth. But he has pointed out that one of the great things about that speech is that literally nothing in it is true. The cuckoo <laughs> clock actually originated in Germany in the Black Forest. Switzerland, apparently, one of their diplomatic envoys sent him a letter saying, nice speech, but we never actually made cuckoo clocks. And apparently, like, he jokes about, like, the Borgias and kind of, like, the Renaissance and stuff like that. While that was going on, Switzerland was supplying mercenaries um, to Italy to help keep the order anyway. Uh, but again, it is such a fantastic speech. And again, we'll probably talk about this in, in a moment as well. But one of the most persistent myths about the third man is that Orson Welles had an outsized impact on it in terms of you know the allegations that he may have contributed to the script or he may have contributed to the direction, all of which are absolutely disputed by everybody else who's worked on the film. Well, and- he was the most consummate self-publicist, wasn't he? I mean, that's what he did. He liked to promulgate this, the uh, the illusion. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't an illusion, but he liked to promulgate the idea of his own genius uh, and never knowingly underplayed his own contribution to anything. Yeah. Um, And like, again, one of the things that's interesting about this is, and we mentioned it earlier, but just to bring it back in, Wells um, was, despite being signed, apparently, again, lots of disagreement between the British and the Americans about who to cast in the roles. Apparently, uh, Corda wanted, I believe, Jimmy Stewart for the role of Martin um, and was overruled by Selsey. He would have been really good, actually. That would have been a really good choice because he has that quality, that um, wide eyed, you know, moral simplicity. He probably would have added too much to it, though. Yeah, you he know, probably would have been yeah, more interested like, in, in Martins had he been played by Stewart. Like, like I, find, I, found it, um, I found myself wondering how intentional that was. Like, I, and I feel it was. That, that kind of, we don't. Like, I found, I found myself more interested in, in, in Anna Schmidt than, than, than with, uh, than with Holly. Yeah. They, 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 um, and even Trevor Howard as Callan as well. As oh, there are so many great parts. Yeah. But I think, yeah. you know, what you're talking about is, uh, I, I think, interestingly, it's often a function of, um, of a really well-made film, especially a film like this where it's a fish out of water, uh, is that, you know, we are Holly Martins and we are going into this strange world and we are meeting people that we don't normally meet. So, of course, everybody else is more interesting, of course. And I don't think that that's a failing of the film. I think that's a function of the film. Well, I'm certainly Holly Martins, anyway. <laughs> I, feel, I, I often, um, doing this podcast, feel like I've, I've, I've had a taxi going over and it's like, now stand up and, and, um, and uh, tell, tell us all about... Um, <laughs> the great the, British authors, yes. The uh, great British authors. How do you feel about Stream of Consciousness, Andrew? <laughs> Stream of Consciousness? Yeah, um, James Joyce. Yeah, um, but uh, what's actually interesting is that there were there's a number of discussions about the casting of Harry Lyme, which is kind of interesting. Where I think that uh, there was some discussion. Kerry Grant was considered for the role because he was over. I think shooting. that would work. I think yeah, you can see how that would work in terms of like his charisma. But apparently, yeah. Selznick was really, really, really pushing for um, and apologies for the. For, it was pushing for Robert Mitchum. Uh, but Mitchum actually got arrested for his famous marijuana kind of bust just before shooting, which rendered him unavailable, which allowed Corda to sneak in uh, the guy they really wanted, which was Wells. And I Wells... think both Cary Grant and Orson Wells have a kind of feline quality, which seems more suitable, doesn't it, than somebody like Robert Mitchum? Yeah, and appropriate enough with I the I think he would have been well. great. Like, the, 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 I'm, I'm thinking about Mitchum in, like, the day of... Um, it's the day of the hunter, isn't it? Yeah, night of the hunter. Night of the hunter. Night of but the it's hunter. a different kind of energy, I think. I would argue. 
Yeah. Mm. I, I think there's there's less there'd be less sophistication to it. He'd be less charming and less I think that would undermine the Americanness of He's it. He's so charming in Knights of the Hunter. That's what makes it so terrifying. Um, you, but there... you, you see how charismatic he is and how everyone is kind of bought over, um, won over by him, I guess. Anyway, no, sorry. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not, by the way, they made the right decision with Orson Welles. Yeah. I feel like that Andrew's hot take is like the third man's weakest link is Orson Welles. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. Um, but what, what's interesting about Wells, though, is that he was apparently quite difficult on set, as you can imagine. Apparently, as you mentioned, fantastic self-promoter. He apparently took the job so that he could travel to Europe and raise money for the films that he wanted to make. Uh, the production team would frequently discover that he had literally left the country in order to find financiers in places like yeah. Italy, Spain and France. And they'd actually have to track him down and like drag him back to shoot the movie as well. Um, famously, when th- when uh, sorry, when they sat down with him, when Reed sat down with him and said, uh, I think you're great for this role. You don't appear until halfway through. Wells's response was make it two thirds of the way through. Um, and also famously, when they were shooting the sewer scenes in Vienna, Wells refused to go down there. Um, his exact quote was, I'm from California. You can't make me do that. Um, apparently, <laughs> despite the fact that the sewers were apparently like they didn't smell. They're quite spacious. In fact, they're again, we'll probably they go about this later huge on. huge on camera, don't they? They're not they as are. spacious as the L.A. sewers, though. <laughs> that's, that's what he meant when he was from California. Yeah. You can't expect me to walk around in these crap sewers. Uh, but apparently, yes, they're actually and I think huge. Elon Musk is making new ones. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, connect, to connect across there. But like apparently Wells refused to go down. So what's interesting is that's one of the reasons, as Nissa mentioned, that they had to um, like actually reconstruct the sets in London for reshooting. But famously, they also would like pad extras they put extras in these coats with paddings and with hats on and film them running around in wide shot to impersonate uh, orson wells because he wouldn't do it which works brilliantly doesn't it it's absolutely beautiful those silhouette shots are gorgeous yeah and famously one of them was a guy hamilton who would go on to direct uh some of the several famous james bond movies including the man with the golden gun and goldfinger as well actually um but yeah like again it's kind of interesting that wells is this kind of almost embodiment of american like that's that's the thing about the movie. It is very much a commentary on Americanisms. Uh, in that, like, obviously, Green originally intended to set in London. He originally had envisaged the characters as British, as Martins and you know Lime. I think Martins mentions this that they'd known each other since school, for example. And again, what's interesting is when Martins is asked when he last saw Harry Lime, he says September nineteen thirty nine, which is coincidentally when the Second World War started as well. But I think that translating the characters and making them American turns the movie into a commentary about Americans in post-war Europe in a way Mm -hmm. that is absolutely kind of biting and fascinating. Because you have Mm -hmm. Martins, who is introduced as this author of kind of pulpy, throwaway Westerns. And again, the film is, we've talked about how serious it is and how beautiful it is. It is incredibly funny as well. It's so witty. It is so witty. The, and, and obviously Wilfred Hyde White gets, you know, a, the absolutely delicious part of being the uh, British Council cultural attaché. Yes. Who, uh, uh, you mentioned it earlier, who invites uh, uh, Joseph Cotton to come and speak about the modern novel. And it's, I mean, it is a little bit ripped off from the 39 steps, but you kind of just go with it anyway, because it's just brilliant. It's a, it's a fantastic moment. Everybody's worst nightmare. Stand up and speak about something about which you know nothing. No. <laughs> until everybody leaves the room and he's the only one left standing it's brilliantly funny but there are so many zingers there's so many 
one-liners that are just delicious and so many uh, little side swipes at, um, at uh, there's, there's the, uh, the four of powers who come, who come to arrest Anna three quarters of the way through the film and there's a French soldier and a Russian soldier and an English soldier and an American soldier and they each get to speak one line to Anna and the final line comes from this French soldier as they're bundling her out the door to take her to prison and he goes mademoiselle your lipstick And again, like one of the things that's remarkable about like the third man is how it's aged, and we'll probably talk about this in a moment. Has aged so well that like its jokes almost work in hindsight. Where like that opening monologue, which apparently was from Carol Reed himself explaining the black market, which is hilarious and kind of very sharp and very brutal but it has this sequence where he's explaining how the kind of like post-war Vienna works with the four powers good fellas on the whole did the best they could but you have this shot of four men in a jeep together and again each representing one of the four powers when two years later you would have this incredibly earnest Swiss movie about the occupation of Vienna literally called four men in a jeep which is about Four men from one of each of the four powers in a jeep together who get involved in an accident. And it almost seems like you're watching the third man take the mickey out of a movie that doesn't exist yet, which is kind of hilarious. But one of the, and, and again, the, the cultural cachet is fantastic as well. You have the, the moment where it's like, last week we had Hamlet. The week before we had something. Uh, the striptease, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. What was it? It was some sort of dance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Hindu was, dancers. Uh, that's it? right. We haven't mentioned. Uh, Trevor Howard's sidekick. What's the name of that? Bernard actor? Lee. Bernard Lee. M from from the Bond movies. Who also gets some of the best lines in the film. He's just his deadpan delivery is absolutely delicious, and it's that noir, knowing, cynical, hilarious, dry wit. It's just delicious. And again, even things like the cultural attaché repeatedly pushing his mistress out of the frame as well, which is a joke I don't think I got when I watched as a kid. But when you're watching these, he's like, he's clearly coming into the hotel and he's walking down with this beautiful woman. And as soon as he sees somebody he recognizes, he very, very quickly, but very gracefully pushes her out of frame every time that he appears, which is kind of hilarious. Um, It is absolutely brilliant. It's just another little touch, another layer in the storytelling, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I love his line as well when he learns about Harry Lyme's passing. It's like, goodness, that's awkward. Uh, but uh, what I was going to say was the interesting thing about Martins is he's introduced literally as a Western writer. He's introduced as a guy mm. who writes these pulp American novels, these pulp American fictions, you know, and, and the lone writer of Santa Fe and so on and so forth. You know, and the, the, the idea that he believes that he's in one of his own stories where he's asking Payne, the character played by Bernard Lee, you know, have you ever read my story about a man who hunted down a sheriff who was victimizing his best friend? Because he thinks that he's actually trapped inside this kind of and like Trevor American Howard movie. And says it to him. He says to him, this isn't one of your stories like it's made very very explicit you know yeah. uh, green really nails it yeah. uh, to make sure the audience is catching on you know this man thinks that the world is made up of good people and evil people but we know that this is not true <laughs> yeah and, and again that that's one of the things that is kind of quintessentially european because again you have this narrative in american pop culture the second world war was inverted commas the good war it was the war well, exactly that was right. fought against yeah. fascism and it was fought you know and the narrative that was folded in to end the holocaust and therefore it's the one war that you can feel unequivocally good about as opposed Correct. to say vietnam yeah. or korea and yeah. i think what's interesting about the third man is that you you really see that kind of shredded because you have and again this is one of the interesting things about Vienna is that Vienna has a interesting relationship to the third man 
where apparently when it was first released, a lot of citizens felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable with it. They felt like it was exploiting uh, them or that it was kind of pointing the finger at them or that it was implicating them in some way, shape or form. And now, you know, now they have whole museums dedicated. They have like a third man museum in Vienna to celebrate it. Well, you can understand um, that though, can't you? I mean, it, you know, you can understand people who are on the breadline and whose livelihoods have been decimated and whose glorious historical city has been decimated feeling a little bit vulnerable and a little bit self-conscious and also they're still coming out from under the shadow of fascism uh it's you know it's a dark time it's a dark time to be a german speaker so i do understand uh, a discomfort about somebody coming in to make entertainment in that world i think it's um it's a tricky thing to do it is but i, I think that's what's interesting about the film is that it, it's almost kind of about that where you have and again green is you know a writer whose work tends to be quite heavy on the L symbolism. And I say that as somebody who loves heavy handed symbolism as a writer, but you have like, again, the idea that like, you know, Harry Lyme, Harold Lyme. And again, the discussion, we'll probably talk a little bit more about Green personally and how maybe Harry Lyme has been seen as a character that relates to Green, you know, Lyme Green obviously being a thing. But Lyme is something that dissolves dead bodies, for example. Lyme is a corrosive agent. Lyme is something that is like damaging and effective, you know, and kind of like corrosive uh, towards that. And you have this idea that, you know, he's literally selling you know, watered down penicillin, this idea of kind of medicine that is literally toxic to the people consuming it. And you have this idea that, and again, one of the interesting commentaries I've read on the film is this argument that it can be seen as a metaphor for the idea, and again, something that comes up repeatedly in American pop culture dealing with the Second World War, but the idea that you had fascism in Europe in the middle of the 20th century. And obviously that was horrific and everybody recognizes in hindsight that it was horrific. But after that, you had the emergence of American global power and the influence that America had on the world stage and it being kind of, you know, this driving force and the idea that of itself, it almost became something as damaging and as corrosive, that it became as corrupting in some sense in kind of the, the sale of capitalism kind of abroad or kind of the mercenary economy and things like that. I think and that that would be hard to argue, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, it is interesting that, you know, you have this presentation well, they, of kind of lines. Didn't, they, didn't, what, didn't, didn't the United States after the war pay for a lot of the reconstruction? Yeah. Yeah, um, it did. And it, uh, and it <laughs> I mean, also... I don't know if you could say it was as damaging as World War II. Yeah. No, no, no. no. I, I, you can really I, no, say, no. you know, yeah. American um, uh, yeah. uh, commercial imperialism was as damaging as, say, for instance, the Holocaust. Yes, yes. No, that, that's entirely fair. But I mean, more in the sense, and again, you see it in American fiction, like, say, the X-Files and things like that, where you have, like, after the Second World War, the first thing that the Americans did was hoover up German scientists um, to help them launch the moon, for example, and things like that, or to help them research weapons. Well, what does that mean, though? Anyway, sorry, we're yeah, getting no, away from the film. Yeah, we are getting off. We are getting off topic. Apologies. Uh, but I do, I do kind of find it but interesting. Let's talk about the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do. Yeah, because we have no controversial opinions about that, apparently. But no, I mean, I, I find that kind of interesting <laughs> that this kind of ambivalence kind of permeates the movie, that there is this sense of, you know, a, a place that is still scarred and that is still kind of, you know, haunted uh, to yes. a certain extent. Like 100%. This, yeah. The use of lighting. They famously, I think they also, they wet the cobblestones as they were filming in order to get those wonderful lighting effects, the kind of wonderful long shadows. And the the cinematography, we haven't talked about Robert Crosker, yeah. who won an Oscar for the cinematography. It is absolutely stunning. Those huge shadows where you have these massive deserted streets and then he sets the light really low so that there's a massive shadow projected onto the building, which is really, it's almost like a ghost story. 
And then, of course, the wet dams. They did huge wet dams across Vienna because it was cheap to do yeah. in a way that, uh, you know, no filmmaker since has ever, ever filmed dry cobblestones. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and stunning. And again, like the fact that you have this kind of like, again, the world's most adorable kind of lynch mob leader, the, the two year old who identifies or the four, the toddler oh, who yeah, identifies. It's dark, isn't Martin. it? That's yeah. really dark. And, and it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a thread that doesn't really go anywhere. It's an interesting sidebar. There's, you know, and it, it, it reminded me a little bit of Fritz Lang. It's a very Fritz Lang thing yeah. to do, you know, to oh, take yeah. this kind of um, disturbing, ugly, beautiful little child who's both very pure and also kind of oddly corrupted yeah. uh, to lead, uh, uh, as you say, a lynch mob. But then it kind of disappears into nothing and it doesn't uh, yeah. it doesn't go anywhere. But, that, but the cinematography is stunning. It's. You know, those um, those canted angles, these uh, really, really expressive, intense close-ups. They're very different from uh, other films that are being made at the time and different from other films that Robert Krasker shot. You know, it feels very different. It feels much more expressionist. Apparently, William Weiner sent uh, Carol Reed a spirit level afterwards. Because the famous kind of canted angles, all the Dutch angles that were used in it. One of the interesting kind of critical observations I've seen, and I haven't seen any interviews to back it up, so I don't know if this was a conscious choice by Reed. But one of the suggestions that that's been made is that Reed's earlier films, um, so this, The Fallen Idol and Odd Man Out, tend to be more heightened and stylized in their cinematography than his later work. I think he eventually won the Best Picture for Oscar in, in 1960, not Oliver, sorry, in 1960. Um, but his earlier work tends to be more stylized. And what's interesting is it's been suggested or commenters or critics have argued that maybe one of the issues was that because a lot of the cinematography and a lot of the more heightened and stylized touches here were, well, first of all, heavily parodied afterwards. And kind of the fact that you had those jokes about sending him a spirit level to put on the camera so that he could fix it properly. Uh, but even things like the fact that a lot of this fueled allegations that Wells, who wasn't even on set for most of the movie, had secretly directed it or something like that, that maybe that had kind of like scared Reed off. But it is, it's an incredibly stylized movie. It, it yeah. does look like something from German expressionism. It's outstanding. Well, it's a film noir. You know, yeah. I think it in, just like Fritz Lang, just like Howard Hawks were making at the period, you know, it is very much using that language, using those uh, kind of idiomatic forms of cinematography. Uh, but it uses them really well. Uh, it, it's a very beautiful film and it's incredibly punchy and graphic. And these inky black shots with beautiful uh, shine off the water and beautiful shine off the cobbles and those wonderful single point perspectives down in the uh, in, in the sewers in the final moment where the camera is on the ground looking at Orson Welles's fingers as he desperately tries to, to lift the um, the man right. yeah. at the end. That's an incredible so, shot. Yeah, it's, it, it is classic film noir. And, and yeah. as you say, of course, that in itself is rooted in the aesthetics of German expressionism. It's like a horror movie almost, like the fingers um, coming, uh, but, but coming, coming up out of it as if, as, as, as if, you know, the, 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 because the idea of the scene is that he's trying to break out, but you're, you're almost more um, worried that he's going to get into worried. the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, he's going that, to like seep out of the sewer. That he's going to break into the world yeah, yeah. rather than kind of break out of the sewer. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it feels really yeah. Um, it's a nice. Kind of, it's a nice moment, isn't it? Nicely articulated. There's like and tension it, in both directions, kind of. Yeah. Um, you know? we haven't talked about the music. Yes. Oh no, no. And and Anton Karas. Yeah. Um and it, Which it, I think apparently Reed heard him. 
Yeah. Reed apparently heard him in a, in a beer hall, I believe, is where he heard the music for the first time. He's like, that's what my movie's going to sound like, which is amazing. Now, the thing about the zither in that film is, A, it's so extraordinary that it, there is only the zither music, but B, he does two really extraordinary things with it. He uses it to produce emotion, which is amazing. And it's such a, a malleable instrument. You know, it can be tender and evocative mm. and it can also be really uh, uh, um, driving. But he also juxtaposes it against the mood of the scene sometimes in a really powerful way. So we're in an, you know, a tender emotive moment between, say, Holly and Anna. And suddenly the zither will kick in with this quite bouncy, assertive music. You're going, oh, Jesus. It's, it's a brilliant aesthetic device because actually, of course, when you do that and you do it well, you heighten the emotion by, uh, by showing it, juxtap by juxtaposing it with something that's almost the opposite. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's an amazing piece of work, and and of course, if you say to anybody the third man, they immediately go dum 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 dum. Even even that shot of him walking through the graveyard to his best friend's funeral, uh, which is set to this almost kind of like as you point out, ironically upbeat music. It's ironically upbeat, and and it's it's it it informs the tone of the film. You know, we've talked about the fact that a lot of the dialogue is very wry, uh, and it's very dry. And the score really supports that, that you're never really allowed. And there's something there's something very European about that as well, I think, that you're never really allowed to wallow in the emotion, even though there is plenty of emotion in the film and there's plenty of tenderness in the film and plenty of heartbreak in the film. The film never really allows you to get too uh, icky about it because no. that zither is always there going come on it's time to move on it's time you're going to starve to death in this city if you spend your time worrying about heartache there's something very practical about it as well you don't you don't have t time to wallow in the emotions of it you, ha you have to be sensible but it's it's just a shame that holly martins doesn't have a sensible name <laughs> I love well, that. Yeah, it's honest, a, it's a sensible, great sober, line, and harmless. Do be, yeah. do be sensible, Holly. I don't have a sensible name. Such, <laughs> such a great line. It's amazing. But again, again, that sort of indictment of kind of like the innocence, the naive innocence of Holly Martins, honest, sensible, sober, harmless Holly Martins. And again, the fact that he believes he can sweep in and he can like save Anna in that way that again, that very, you know, we talked about in the podcast quite a lot that we see in a lot of these movies, that masculine fantasy of I'm going to, I'm going to arrive, I'm going to fix this woman, I'm going to put her in a place where she's going to be taken care of, I'm going to be the solemn hero of this narrative and then discovering no, no, it's not at all that simple at yeah. all. It feels very contemporary. Yeah. Because it, it, in movies, it, it generally is that simple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, find a woman in trouble, save her from that trouble. I'm not sure that the film quite avoids uh, the, um, the wish fulfillment fantasy, though. I think Anna is not quite a three-dimensional and realistic yeah. figure. I think she has a quality of wish fulfillment about her because she is loyal to a fault. You know, she's just ridiculously right. loyal. And there's something that she says, something that she says about Harry Lyme that, um, that just doesn't feel like a real woman, but feels like if you invented a lover that you would want to be totally unswervingly loyal to you. This is the kind of thing your lover would say. She says, what is it? She says, she says something like, um, I don't want to see him. I don't want to know how he is, but he's still a part of me. And he always, oh, and I could, I could never betray uh, that part, and I could never hurt uh, that part. And I'll always love him, or something like that. And she, uh, she sacrifices herself, yeah, 
with, to no end. Like there's no practicality to the way that she sacrifices herself. It's just a pointless sacrifice in order to articulate this notion of unswerving loyalty. And while the tone is brilliantly achieved and while she is a really interesting character and she's incredibly sexy and really layered, I do feel that there is an element of wish fulfillment fantasy in her construction. Yeah, well, I mean, even outside that, she arguably exists to kind of like justify kind of to contrast with with Martin's like, you know, she she undoubtedly loves Harry Lyme, but she's very much exists in order to make Martin's feel worse about himself because he doesn't have that loyalty. He wants to have that loyalty that she just represents without being. So to some degree, I I think she's a cipher. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I thought there was an I thought there was a lot of kind of uncomfortable truth. In 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 some of that, like like as as in the kind of distinction between love and admiration, like of 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 loving somebody terrible, you know, and and um and not kind of understanding it or being able to justify it or um or be able to help it, I guess. Do it do it do it do it be be because. Like you have it to a lesser extent in um, in Holly as well, because yeah, who he's has just this friend- idea of who yeah. Lime is. Yeah, his idea that Lime is the victim here. Lime must be the victim here because I've known him since school. Yeah, except that Holly transforms. You know, yes, when yeah. he discovers the truth mm. about Lime, he goes, "Okay, he was my friend, but I see now that he needs to be handed over to the cops." Uh, and that's something that you know Anna's presented as the alternative to that going no she's just going to be unswervingly loyal to it so in some respects she's a cipher against which holly moves and and in terms of that cipherness as well i think you could argue that she also you know is very much a cipher for vienna itself she's introduced in that stage play as well like she introduced this old-fashioned kind of like period drama stage piece with this wonderful set construction this glowing dress as well which is very much like this is what europe used to be like for example and she's caught in the tragedy of the fall of vienna Yeah. yeah And she's caught in this kind of, again, and not not to get too back, you know, too far back into the, you know, are the Americans, you know, as bad as fascism, which they are not, to be absolutely clear. But the sense in which <laughs> the sense in which she's introduced and she's Anna is kind of in the thrall of this man who is literally poisonous and toxic and is going to kill the children of Vienna um, in a way that and again, it's it's been suggested that one of the tensions within the third man within Vienna is the idea that it can be read as and particularly the character of Anna as a metaphor for this kind of conflict in the Austrian character about its relationship to, you know, the ascent of Nazi Germany, where it's like, were we invaded in the Anschluss? Were we annexed in the Anschluss? Uh, were we, you know, just sort of taken for a ride? Were we, you know, the result of a coup? Well, she's Czech. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think she embodies, I think she kind of embodies that European sensibility, perhaps, or that kind of continental thing, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I suppose I'm, not yeah. The, I'm not sure I totally buy that, actually. Yeah. I, don't, I don't read that in her. I don't okay. see that in the performance. Uh, I think a lot is made of the fact that she's Czech and uh, and therefore at risk. Uh, you Maybe know, from the Russians, there was a subplot yeah, as well. Yeah, that was yeah, and uh, there's there's that beautiful scene where she hands over her papers, and and uh, and Trevor Howard is is quite gentle but very clear that yeah. these are forged and we know they're forged, and then the Russians want her. So I think there's you know there is uh, I think you're right to say that it's. Uh, to some degree, she's, you know, she's there going, this is this is what's coming in Europe as well, is this kind of carve up of um, of middle Europa. But um, I'm, I'm not sure that she's um, I'm not sure there's anything there about her 
there's no in the thrall of, of Harry or whatever. Kind of uh, well, thing, yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure about that. I, I, okay. I know what you're saying, but I feel like, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's it's no, it's it's, it's non estis putandum. It's in the eye of the beholder wh- yeah. whether you you read it that way or not. Um, what is interesting, though, and again, because we kind of talked a lot about the politics of the movie, there's a lot kind of there personally in terms of Green and in terms of how Green's talked about the film and how he's kind of talked about how it reflects his own experience. One of the interesting reasons in the film is that, uh, and again, sorry, this is a little bit kind of getting back into the history and kind of politics aspect of it. But the idea that, and again, we mentioned German expressions with a huge influence on it, but things like, say, the use of the sewer, where you have Harry Lyme as this monster who goes into the literal underground, kind of that's running around beneath the surface, just waiting to burst out, as Andrew described it, like something from a monster movie. And the, the idea that, you know, this isn't just a commentary on Europe in 1949. This is also just, you know, a primal fear that we have in all of us that, you know, there's something lurking in the darkness, something and in the shadow. And profiteering was a big thing, right? I yeah. mean, it was genuinely a big yeah. thing. Oh, and yeah. it's a big thing in English cinema <clears throat> of the time. You know, this is uh, um, the great betrayal is uh, if you engage in profiteering. But of course, everybody engaged in profiteering. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But the, the, the idea as well of her romanticizing this act of Lyme for, the, like, you know, kind of like um, helping, like, um, arranged to 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 profit out of, out of a desperate person, whether it's from her um, being paid for it, which which maybe she didn't, or or, or just winning her 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 love and admiration um, out of it. But the, the the whole idea of him winning him securing her um, her passport because she's a desperate person who 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 needs a passport. And then I, 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 I suppose of um, um, of Martin's trying to repeat the trick. Yeah. Um, uh, later on, to 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 get to her, just, her documents uh, back and get her out. Exactly yeah. to just borrow from the Harry Lyme kind yeah, of playbook. Uh, playbook when when she's already been because this was a, a like a devastating time for um, like before during. And after the war, for people in Czechoslovakia, some of whom never came back, yeah. like they, and, and I, I think, I think Tom Stoppard was born in in Czechoslovakia and was um, exiled, I believe, the, the kind of escaped um, and spent years kind of like bouncing from pillar to post. He did, did, described himself as 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 a as a bounced check, but he he, uh, which, which, which is a great stopperism. But 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 it kind of captures that this movie captures that experience of so many people, I guess, who who are um, displaced as kind of like like we think of refugees um, uh, these days, not not as kind of um, uh, Central Europeans. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 it kind of gives, gives you um, a, a perspective on a lot of kind of contemporary things as well. Well, even even the Viennese in the film are very much dispossessed. Like you have the sequence yeah. where Anne, they're searching Anna's apartment and her landlord, who looks homeless, like she's she's draped in like, looks like a blanket, like she's been sleeping rough, and she's like shouting at the soldiers in German as they're ransacking, you know, Anna's apartment. And Harry asks, "What did she say?" And Anna said, "She's only complaining about the way they behaved in her house." 
And there's a real sense of kind of that being a feeling as well of a lot of the characters, a lot of the kind of, you know, uh, Austrians are kind and of And what she's there. saying is you cannot just barge into yeah. a lady's room. Yeah. You know, she's she's using this kind of courtly language when she's talking, which is... The oh, and in German, and like in, in actual... Yeah. Yeah. She's using kind of fantasy echo, yeah. Viennese German. Uh, uh, that's about politeness, yeah. you know, and this isn't the way that you speak to a lady and you don't just barge into a lady's room and this is unacceptable. But it, but she, it, it's, it is absolutely materially um, indicative that she comes from another world. And her house is an extraordinary house, right? It's, yeah. it's a yeah. kind of um, uh, palace. Yeah. <laughs> where 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 these down and out she's had kind a of yeah. different life she's yeah. and and her language is is very descriptive of that different life yeah i mean even things like kurtz you know when he's when kurtz you know reaches out to to martin's and he's like we need to talk and martin's like come to the hotel and kurtz is like austrians aren't allowed in your hotel you have this weird sense of like people being almost dispossessed in their own home like you yeah. you know again this is the thing and that the baron playing violin it's 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 all there uh, in the storytelling well, and, and of course, the American being displaced, like running around with Disney dollars, trying, <laughs> trying to kind of um, get in places and being, being, being turned away. Like, yeah, um, when it, yeah, absolutely. When economy and, and society breaks down and, you know, there's no such thing as a stable currency and all of the previous hierarchies are suddenly upended. It's, uh, it's frightening. Um, but very quickly, actually, just in terms of, of kind of the movie and in terms of Green, one of the things that I found that was very, very interesting was and, and kind of uh, NASA mentioned this when she talked about like what the movie's about. And it's about trust and loyalty and betrayal and about those ideas like on a very fundamental level, because um, I think Green has talked about, you know, he, he, he converted to Catholicism uh, late in life. And he has this kind of again, in this movie, you have that question. You used to believe in God. It's like, oh, I still believe in God, old man. Uh, but you have this kind of idea that, that kind of runs through Green's work of betrayal and about trust. And I think he himself has cited that it came from when he was in school. His father was the headmaster. And wow. all the other boys used to beat him up because they thought that everything that they said was getting reported back. They thought that Green was betraying them. And what's interesting, uh, and one of the things that's been read into uh, the movie, is that... Um, Harold, uh, sorry, Harry Line has been seen as a perhaps a stand-in for the character or for the real-life person of Kim Philby, um, who may be known as one of the Cambridge Circus spies. Oh, who yes, actually yeah. worked with Green. He was Green's superior. And in fact, actually, one of the things about Philby is when he was working with Green... John le Carre knew him as well. Oh, yeah. Again, very, very small community there. But Philby used to actually smuggle uh, migrants. Like in 1934, when the Germans came into um, Austria and into Vienna, Philby smuggled socialists out of Vienna using those tunnels, using those That's sewers. That's really interesting. Yeah. And in fact, actually, that's one of the things about the sewers, like some of the extras in those that kind of NASA noted, the extras in those sequence are actual like Viennese policemen who patrol the sewers because they actually have a specially trained task force because the sewers don't fall under the jurisdiction or didn't fall under the jurisdiction wow. of the four powers. But one of the interesting things so that, that, that gives that character then this kind of ambiguity that he's both roguishly lovely and also quite dark. He is. And again, like one of the things about one of the big mysteries about Philby is that Philby said that he Philby tried to was promoted uh, in 1944 and wanted to promote Green up after him. Green uh, declined the promotion and resigned from the service and never explained why he did it. One of the speculations has been that Green began to suspect that Philby had, wow. been, had, had been had sold himself out to oh the Russians beforehand. That's so interesting. 
And Green has actually said he was asked after Philby defected to Russia and after Green maintained a writing relationship with him through to Philby's death. But Green was asked, if you had known Philby was a Russian betrayer, what would you have done? And Green said, honestly, I would have given him 24 hours to get away and then I would have reported him. And you can arguably perhaps see some of that in... That's so interesting because when I was watching the film the other night, one one of the things that was running through my mind was, you know that E.M. Forster quote where he says... If at any time in my life I am asked to choose between betraying my country and betraying betraying my friend, I hope I will have the courage to betray my country. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you kind of get that sense with Green there as well. I think we're about wrapping up there. So very, very quickly before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? I feel like we've done an excellent job. (laughs) We've talked about casting, which is fabulous. That's an amazing, amazing cast from Trevor Howard to Joseph Cotton to... Alida Valley, who didn't possibly have the career that that anybody would have expected after that absolutely brilliant performance. Uh, we've talked about the beautiful, stunning cinematography at the the quintessence of noir cinematography. We've talked about the brilliant use of music. We've talked about the amazing production design. And as you say, shot on location, which is very unusual at the time. And also this incredible use of the sewers and I didn't realize that they had this extra dimension, this extra kind of symbol, uh, symbolic dimension for people who understood that they were used prior to the war. And we've talked about the casting of Viennese actors and no subtitles. I think we've done an excellent job in selling this brilliant film to an unsuspecting public. Perfect, before we wrap up then very, very quickly. um, I will just say one name, Ernest Deutsch, Uh, terrific. close-ups of 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 him are just tremendous like he's what it has the most interesting face he's playing the, the baron kurtz oh, um, yeah isn't he oh, beautiful we will include these in the Absolutely. show notes but there are Gorgeous. some lovely photos of the two dogs that played his dogs oh, and, yes. no have ah, you seen have you seen the photos of the dogs no, there are two dogs. They're in the back. The photos. What are they they're, doing they're, now? They're the, yeah. They're, they're, but they're the most pampered dogs. They're sitting in the back seat of a Rolls Royce, and they're wearing little doggy sweaters. <laughs> Listeners, check them out in the show notes. We'll tweet it out as well. It is it is a joy. But anyway, before we wrap up, what we normally do is we ask our guests very quickly to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. So, with a little bit of time pressure, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first, and then Nissa. So, Andrew, very quickly, what would you recommend? So I'd recommend two things. I'd recommend um, Fritz Lang's M. Um, NASA mentioned the um, the four-year-old feeling like um, it was kind of from a Fritz <laughs> the Lang movie. The world's happiest lynch leader. Lynch yeah, leader. That, yeah, that's that, that's what I thought when 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 I was looking at that 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 child and a very brief chase scene. So if you want <laughs> a, a longer chase scene, then then watch. Watch M. It's a terrific movie. Another Graham Greene um, adaptation um, that I recommend from about the same time, not the same time as M, which was earlier, but, but from 1948 bad. was uh, Brighton Rock. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's incredible. It's, it's, it's a Graham Greene adaptation. And it, it's, it goes I, it, more into some of, some of the themes of um of good and bad and of um betrayal so if um and i i love um brighton rock um so yeah check check that out and nasa what would you recommend very quickly uh well i i think m is an excellent film i would definitely recommend m it's 
brilliant and one of my all-time favourite films. I'm going to recommend The Tin Drum, which is a 1979 film by Volker Schlandorf, which is uh, another meditation on good and evil and the descent of Germany into the hell of uh, fascism. Um, and for anybody who hasn't uh, caught it, there is a TV drama that was made, set in Berlin uh, but, and it's, it's uh, set between 1928 and 1940, I think, called Babylon Berlin, which is absolutely brilliant. We've had a couple of guests recommend that, actually. Yeah, yeah again, a very stylish, noir uh, interrogation of the descent into fascism. Oh, cool. Very quickly, recommendations for myself. I'm quite enjoying uh, Perry Mason on TV because it's very much set in that period, kind of the, the interwar period, film noir influenced. Um, first episode's a bit rough, but the rest of the season's fantastic. And also, very, very quickly in terms of trivia, um, Orson Welles would adapt the character of Harry Lyme. This was a huge, we mentioned that Third Man was a huge hit when it was released. Um, Orson Welles would record a 50 episode radio series called Where in the World is Harry Lyme? Um, <laughs> And basically, it will be a series of half-hour vignettes of Wells in character. Many of the episodes written by him, all performed and some directed by him, telling these short stories. And you can find them online. Most of them are on YouTube to stream as well. Some of them are on Criterion editions. And also then going one step further, Wells adapted one of those uh, stories, The Man of Mystery, uh, of the Harry Lyme series into a movie, Mr. Arcaden, which was uh, released a couple of years ago by Criterion. It is the movie that Wells loathes or loathed most in his career because he didn't have director's cut. It exists in something like seven different versions but if you want a kind of an xp spin-off version of the further adventures of harry lime <laughs> um mr arcaden which is available the geography Mark- lesson um, yeah, as well, but, where in the world is sorry. <laughs> but it's it's much more globe trotting. It's like very much. It's like <laughs> it's like well, Carmen we, San Diego. Yeah, um, it's like you can imagine Wells when he was making the Third Man, traveling around Europe looking for finance, going, "Oh well, but wait, if <laughs> what what if that with this the Third Man, but in this country as well?" It's very very worth seeking out. And then very quickly, uh, Nissa, where can we find you online if listeners are looking for a bit more Nissa Hardyman? Uh, <laughs> check out your films. Where can they if find they can you? Bear anymore, Nissa Hardyman. <laughs> uh, I am on Twitter at. Yes, a hardy man. It's probably the easiest way to find me. And I've got a website, which is also my name. Perfect. And also, just to remind listeners, Sea Fever is available to stream if you're in the UK and Ireland. I believe it's on Now TV and Sky. Um, it it may- is available to stream on, on God now on Google Play, on Volta, on iTunes, on uh, all good streamers in the UK and Ireland. And it dropped on Hulu a couple of weeks ago in the US. And is well worth your time seeking out. Thank you so much uh, for this as well. Fantastic. We'll yes. be back thank, next thank week. Thank you so much, Neil. Um, continuing the trend of asking people who are too polite to say no to come on the podcast, the wonderful Emmett Kerwin and Joe Griffith will be joining us for a discussion of James Cameron's 1984 classic, The Terminator. Bye. Bye.